Welcome to the Idea Land podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Spencer Hutchins is the CEO and co-founder of Concert Health, an all-round nice guy. Spencer talks to Ravi about his journey from the John Kerry presidential campaign, the first medical team at the FCC, to creating a digital health startup focused on improving our mental health. Spencer Hutchins, welcome to Idea Land. Great to be here. Great to see you. Let me just get into it really quickly with you because we've known each other for a long time. How does it feel to be super successful? <laughs> uh, I don't think I feel super successful uh, in the business yet, um, although uh, it's getting more and more exciting. Um, you know, I think on a day to day basis, I mostly think about, you know, getting. Uh, the kids on Zoom school or, or to their preschool or, um, you know, figuring out how to balance a crazy life with a with a, a wife who's also working her butt off uh, in a legal career and doing great uh, and sort of how to balance those things. But um, at concert, you know, one thing that it's funny that hit me recently was uh, we were just doing our head of people. We're just doing a um, benefit um uh, re, uh, what do they call them? Renewal, right? When we have to like, you know, redo our health insurance options and stuff. And yeah. we re- I realized that there's 53 people on our, on our health plan. Right. And there'll probably be more than double that by the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of those funny, I remember having this, you know, with you a couple of times at reflection too, it's that moment when you're like, oh man, this isn't an idea anymore, right? This isn't like <laughs> a, a vision and a PowerPoint and, you know, some concepts, but, um, you know, Verna and I, my co-founder and our chief operating officer at concert were like, holy moly, you know, it was like, how, you know, those many people relying on us, not only do they have a paycheck from us, you know, they're relying on us for their health insurance while they're providing exceptional health care to other people. Um, and that was real. It's a, it's a fun moment. It's a gratification uh, that you sort of say, man, that's that's awesome that we're now. A lot of people are joining this because it's like a it's a better job it's a better career path it's a better opportunity to make impact than if they were just working at a health system or a private practice or or another thing and and uh yeah that that part feels really really uh exciting and a good moment to sort of pause and remember all that you'd accomplished when normally we're just thinking about okay what's next how do we get better how do we fix the problem you know all those sorts of things yeah, I think it's a it's a shared experience uh, at different scales, but it's like the magnitude of the experience of the person's the same. I'm just rem- what I'm I'm talking about like um, whether you're leading a team of like sixty people or fifty people, or really leading uh, leading a team of like a million. So I'm just thinking about uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, yeah. letter to his employees, and he's like, you know, yeah. we have like a million employees, like we care about you, and it's a, it's a large responsibility. And I, I read that and I was like, Jesus, yeah, that is right. He actually does wake up and probably think about those people's lives as much as people don't want to think that he cares. He probably does. He cares a lot. Um, and so do you, right? So it's like, you're not, t- you know, you don't have a million employees yet, but it's, it's like nice to know you have something in common with this club of people who are doing moving forward on these ideas. Right. Um, but the story of concert really requires uh, the story of you. So if I could just back up, go um, and, and, and say, what is the story of Spencer Hodgins? Grew up Lexington, Massachusetts, awesome little suburb of uh, 
of Boston, uh, famous for where the Revolutionary War started. Although most importantly, me, it meant we had an awesome grassy area uh, in the middle of town where we could play uh, sports uh, and uh, hang out after after school. You know, was really lucky in a lot of ways. Had a great childhood. Had um, uh, early struggles in school because I have dyslexia and dysgraphia. And an amazing mom that uh, identified that early and got me a lot of support. My friends were always submitted to them, but didn't have good grades or didn't succeed for a while. And by the time I sort of left high school, was in a much better spot. And so, um, you know, that was that. I think in many ways defined me that struggle that decision not to give up that decision to get a bunch of help which was really uh, as much my mom advocating for me and my dad advocating for me than anything and put me in an awesome spot so um you know then then did uh college up in maine decided massachusetts wasn't cold enough so i went to colby and um had a blast there studied economics and political science and government and um uh, that was, uh, graduated right, uh, in the first term of the Bush administration. I was sort of fascinated with policy and politics and, and really not happy about the way he was governing the country. And so I ended up joining a presidential campaign and trying to get John Kerry elected president, um, which was a blast. So I joined that campaign after, uh, um, uh, right after, really, I started working interning with him when I was still in school, um, and then joined. I think my first title was senior intern uh, in uh, June, like seven months before the New Hampshire primary, and uh, you know, eighteen months before the general. And uh, you know, worked my butt off. I think I had a four hundred dollar a month stipend. I lived with my parents, and uh, I got it. And that was awesome. You want to talk about an organization growing or whatever? I mean. Running president is the craziest job interview in the world. I had uh, um, my first event there, I remember, was uh, um, organizing in Franklin, New Hampshire. 45 people showed up, and that was with my parents and like eight of their Republican friends who were definitely going to vote for George Bush, but were just doing me a favor to show up to make sure I wasn't embarrassed by too small of a crowd. And then and then did that for, for a year and a half. And my last event in Tampa, Florida, where I ended up working in the general election, it was an outdoor rally with 20,000 people. He had a 70 car uh, armada that took him from the airport to the event because he was, you know, possibility that he was three days away from being the president-elect. And so they regarded him as if he was a president, like snipers on the roof and those things. And then you remember back, it's like, this is the same job interview back from that event in Franklin um, where um, the um, uh, I, I was like MapQuest emailing, you know, emailing MapQuest uh, links to his driver that would come over and pick him up in a minivan and uh, drive him up to New Hampshire so he could make fundraising calls uh, on the on the drive up to this event where he's going to talk to 45 voters, uh, you know, in a VFW hall. So that was an absolute blast. Uh, obviously did not have the outcome I wanted, which is we thought we were going to elect the next president. Um, and uh, but did give me a really amazing view into organizing people. I mean, that's what campaigns are about. You know, a couple million people that are willing to do more than just vote, right? They want to have yard signs or make phone calls or, you know, wear a button or knock on doors or give rise to the polls or show up food. And, you know, a big part of what I was doing was um, trying to figure out how to turn that energy into things that productively get votes for a candidate. It was fascinating. It was like, um, you know, just an opportunity. The promotion cycles on political campaigns were like, if you don't screw up, 
on a three-week window, you get promoted, right? Because you're growing so fast and having been lucky about working for the one that ended up getting the nomination, you know, so it's just kind of bigger, bigger, bigger. And the, I think on election day in Tampa, there's probably 3,000 volunteers working for me, 100 people on, that are getting paid something, um, you know, all supporting on election day stuff. It was just a wild and exhausting and, and fun ride that didn't work out the way I wanted, but uh, did uh, professionally, but found uh, my wife uh, who was done the same journey and uh, met, uh, met at a New Hampshire staff meeting that uh, first summer and uh we've uh been together pretty much ever since and so worked out really great for me if not quite for uh my candidate <laughs> i thought you were gonna say for uh, laura that was a blast it... and then you know i don't know after that i went to business school and... i i want to pause and i i have a couple of questions actually it's funny i've never actually asked you about these experiences as much as i should have in the past when you're describing this entire experience, it just sounds so frenetic. It, it almost sounds like a Coachella that just kept going, right? Like a, a for for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. What was the hardest part about that? I mean, you must have been. What, what, how old were you when when you joined his campaign? So it was right after college. Is you know, 22, I guess. Yeah, 22, 23. And had you and you'd never done anything to this scale or this pace before? I'm assuming. No, I mean, I'd been a, I'd been a waiter. You know, uh, in summers, you know, I worked at a, a retail store, um, you know, but no, I mean, this is my first job. How did you deal with just the stress of being thrust into the limelight and with such responsibility? You know, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it was fun. I mean, I think it's in, not for everybody and obviously some people, but, um, it's it's cool. I mean, the energy you know from there is is wild. Uh, particularly when you politics was not as central or as cool as it is now. This you know pre Obama, pre Trump, pre a lot of things. Although there's a lot of energy because of the Iraq War, right? And that was you know for those listeners that aren't our generation may forget that you know of like what that was like. But there you know a lot of people just thought that's a disaster, you know, and uh, we got to change. And so there's a lot of energy, still a lot of um, rage in, in particular when I was in Florida of people that have been really involved in the 2000 election and, and uh, thought that George Bush wasn't the, the rightful winner back then. And now Gore should have been president. You know, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's a lot of really awful stuff. I really have to, to psych myself up. I remember just hating phone calls, cold calls. That was a good lesson for, you know, for startup world though, of like, you're just gonna, you know, you had to be like, especially early in the campaign, you don't have a lot of volunteers yet. There's not a lot of energy. So, you know, you might get one person to come phone bank with you or two people, but the only way you're gonna hit your number, you know, and tell your regional director that we made enough phone calls today was like, you're gonna make 130 of them, you know, or, you know, and I, I was lucky my mom was a great volunteer. So she, she was like always the supporter and she'd make 200, I'd make 150 and someone else would make them and then we'd hit our goal. Um, and so it was a lot of monotonous work like that, but it was pretty, it's funny. Uh, you go from that and just, oh my God, I got a call and most people are going to help on me and they don't Dean or John Edwards or, you know, Wesley Clark. Um, but then also you'd work on some event and it would be, you know, front page of the newspaper the next day. It would be, um, you know, maybe both of the local paper and the national paper, New York Times writers would be coming. And it's funny now when in a startup, you're focused on, hey, can I get, 
TechCrunch to write about my fundraising or can I get, you know, somebody to, to do this or, you know, and it, it was funny that it was just normal back then to be doing this thing that particularly as you advance in the campaign, get close to the primaries or close to the general election, that there would be hundreds of, of uh, reporters on and, you know, and millions of people reading about it every day. Um, not as though they read about me, but you're like, oh man, I helped put that stanchion there, right? Or I made sure the crowd was big enough or, hey, that big crowd, I made sure we got as many people as possible to sign up volunteer cards so we could call them again and get them to knock on doors the next weekend or something like that. Do you think um, back then, if you had access to the right, like the same digital tools that people do now for marketing and elections like Facebook and the social media would have, they would have, uh, uh, the result would have been different? Yeah, it was, um, I would be fascinated. I, I, I went back in and I never did it again professionally full time, but like in 08 and in uh, 12 would, it would take like a week off and like fly back to New Hampshire and work the last week of the campaign or something. I haven't been able to do it the last couple, but it is funny as the talks are still in it, just how much of a transformation that's been. One, there's, I mean, it was really early on the digital team. I remember it was like our first, um, there was this team, Ken Strasma, I think was his name. And we were losing really, really badly to um, Howard Dean for a part of it. But he had this ability, they had done this early big data experiment to figure out who's likely to be a carry supporter. And they were, and my understanding is they pulled in age, demographics, what magazines you had and things like that. And he was giving us and our volunteers call lists that were targeted for people more likely to be our supporters. And I remember like the polls always had us down we were down 15, 20 points to, uh, at one point in the primary, but the call list, we would like at the end of the night, we'd identify about the same number of carry supporters as we did other people's, right? Other Dean or, or Edwards or, or Gephardt or Clark were the, you know, those, for those folks that those probably names that people don't even remember anymore if they're not old enough. And uh, I remember our volunteers were like, we're not, you know, we're not losing. I know on the phones, like we're doing great. And I was like, I think there's a really smart person that figured some stuff out. And it's like some combination of the, and I remember it was like just scratching the surface. And so it's funny now, I think that level of sophistication yeah. is obviously through the roof on on how you communicate. You know, one thing I think that the Obama campaign pioneered, I think we're getting better and better about is recognizing that a random stranger calling you is so much less effective than figuring out how to use social networks and actually people who really know people, neighbors really knocking on neighbors' doors and stuff, um, has a much bigger uh, impact. It's a fascinating area. I do remember we used to have to physically cut turf with what it was called, which was take lists of where you're going to knock on doors and you had to put a you had to print and and photocopy a map and highlight which streets they should go down and then you'd have to find like essentially you can knock on like 80 doors in a shift you like on a saturday morning you can get like two people to show up here's 80 pieces of paper go knock on 80 doors ask them who they're going to vote for if they're not sure tell them why you're voting for john Kerry, and if they're not home give them this little you know, pamphlet on their door. And, and now it's just like some buttons, right. And the system yeah. just push it out, you know, and it was like, I remember there was a volunteer in New Hampshire, this one couple, and they would keep the maps of Concord, right. Of like what the good turf was and, and what streets you should put in the same packets. And it was all physical paper that they had in these huge binders. It was like a big, they were professional activists. 
And that was so valuable at the time, the like received wisdom of which streets in Concord you could knock on in one shift, that they would get calls from the candidates to, to get their support. And it was like, why do you want Jim and Valerie on the team? It was like, just because their maps are so good. And now it's amazing. Cause like you go back on a campaign now, they hit a button and it's like, boom. And it just print, it doesn't even print it out anymore. It pushes your, your thing to a smartphone app where your volunteer logs into and then they have it and and go run around and knock on first. Yeah, that's fascinating. This whole story is interesting because it's a part of your life that I think whenever anybody at that age, whatever they're working on is pretty formative. So I think there's a lot of lessons here. And I think understanding you is like understanding this part of your life is really important understanding you and and actually all the stuff you've worked on um, downstream of that. Uh, so yeah, yeah that, so is John Kerry still on your speed dial or, I mean, I'm sure obviously everyone probably dispersed after that, went to the, do their own things. No. You'll keep in touch with that team. No, I was never, I mean, it was funny. Um, you know, no, we were never, I mean, that's one of those things I think, you know, aspiring people that love politics think like they're going to get into political campaigns and you're going to be like advising, people on messaging what you're going to say at the debate. And I couldn't have been farther away from that. I was like, no, how are we going to make 5,000 phone calls tonight? Right. You know, how are we going to knock on doors? You know, how do we get, how, you know, cause ultimately, you know, the part of the organization I was in field, right. Is really about how do you touch as many voters as possible to persuade them to vote for you. Um, and then as you get closer to the election, it's less about persuading them to vote for you. And it's more about making sure that people who, if they vote will vote for you actually vote. Right. And it turns into this mobilization effort. Um, so, uh, no, still close to I mean, you know, obviously with Lori, um, um, you know, we still have a lot of friends from that from that era. It is um, um, uh, funny going back to, uh, you know, watching, you know, he's he's back uh, in the limelight working for President Biden. Now it's got, you know, uh, now coming in on on 20 years later, uh, but glad and proud of the work he's doing on climate change. And uh, um, but uh, yeah, he would uh, definitely not remember me uh, anymore. Uh, so so after but I mean, there's not there's not too many things other than a startup. You know, I joined. I think I was probably employee 70. You know, there's like 20 people in Iowa, 15 of us or so in New Hampshire, and then the and then the campaign headquarters in Boston. Um, and then a year and a half later, I don't know how many employees there were, but thousands and thousands. And then at least hundred, yeah, probably hundreds of thousands of pretty active volunteers. And, and so um, not too many startups have that growth. Now the money that's in campaigns, you know, they're spending by the end of it, your, your presidential campaigns are, are billion dollar enterprises, you know, and that they're things that didn't exist two years earlier. So um, it, it's pretty wild from a from a hyperscale perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. You're right. It is. I I I always used to use the uh, remember I used to say like filmmaking is really close to startups. Like it's like the same thing. It's like you have marketing and product and all the logistics and stuff. But thinking about what you just said, it's true actually. Right? Campaigns are like that. Uh, you've just got to mobilize so many yeah. people toward a common purpose. Um, and uh, yeah, interesting. So from from so from that phase of your life ended, you transitioned into to Colby, or you were kind of at Colby at yep. the time. That was so. That was uh, right after Colby. So it was right after undergrad. After I graduated, that was my first job, and then I had like lots of career plans. Um, they all started with working for the president, uh, and then we lost. Right. So it was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to work for the president. So I was like, what the heck do I do? So. 
um, you know, it was a tough time. I was exhausted, um, uh, probably depressed, right? You know, uh, clinically, um, and uh, a, a little adrift. And then, when you say that, I just though, I knew I, I wanted to have a. I want to I want to touch on that because it's just so relevant to today's discussion as well. But when you say clinically depressed, are you looking at that from, uh, yeah, I was sad or, you know, knowing what I know now as a CEO of a company that's doing mental health, I probably was clinically depressed. Yeah, it's probably a combination, right? You know, I, I didn't know then to give myself a PHQ-9. Uh, I do remember um, I was literally sleeping like 14 hours a day. And, I, you know, for the first few days, you can chalk that up to like, you're just literally that exhausted, you know, and then at some point it was, that was not, it was not a literal exhaustion thing. It was a, you know, oh crap. Uh, I had so much purpose, so much energy in my life. And now, you know, I think, you know, for a couple of weeks, all you're doing is the really depressing work of like shutting the campaign down, right? You got to like return the photocopier and clean the office and give keys back and, and, um, figure out how to, what to do with yard signs and things. And so I was off the payroll around Thanksgiving, you know, and, and drove up to my back home, you know, and it was like, at that point, I'd been really blessed. I had a great college career. I, I got paid like crap, but a, a job that had a lot of like, you know, purpose to it. It was exciting, you know, something I was proud to tell my friends about. And now you're like, okay, I'm just like unemployed, you know? And I was like, what the heck? Um, and I loved the campaign experience, but I didn't think I wanted that to be my only career path. Um, and, and, and always wanted something that sort of spanned the public and private sector. Um, and when you saw people that did a lot of campaigns early, the way that they worked in the private sector was to be a lobbyist. Like you get enough credibility and then you get hired by companies, but you're only hired because you, you did that campaign 10 years ago with the, the woman who's now the chief of staff to an important senator, you know, or Got something it. like that. And that, uh, I mean, some of those people that do that work, it's great work, but it, it that wasn't what excited me about, about private enterprise, about companies. It was like, how do you solve problems with people, you know, and how do you build teams and get things done? And so at some point, pretty soon, I sort of decided um, that like business school was the right way to do that. It was like, I don't know how to go. If I go get a job at a company, it was like, I just had this world in which there was like hundreds of people working for me. I was organizing thousands, but it was like, you can't show up and, and get a job at a, at a company and go like get credit for that. It would be like, okay, maybe you're just a recent college grad, you know, you'd be on the bottom. And I knew there was a lot I needed to learn and a lot I needed to, um, and, and a way to sort of stamp that credibility for what it was, which I thought was really important early management, early leadership skills, and felt like an MBA was the, the right way to do that. So kind of like somewhere around December 1st, I started to say, uh, I think I want to go to business school, and I didn't know anything about it. So I was like, okay, what are the, you know, what are the business schools I can get into? What are the business schools? How do you, you know, what? What are the tests you need to take? You know, I, I think it was probably around there when I learned what the GMAT was. And then I spent the month of just, and then realized that all the application deadlines were sort of mid-January. So I spent all of December um, just like living with my parents, studying for the GMAT and uh, seeing if I could get my score high enough to get into the schools I wanted to go to. Why is it that, 
business school, like no one ever really talks about business school or their business school experience. It just seems like this perfunctory set of things that they have to do and then they exit mm. out and they got the MBA. But I, I want to explore it just because I've never been to business school. There's a lot of people yeah. uh, who are running successful businesses and are involved in businesses that, that have never been there. What was your mm. favorite part of business school? I loved it. Um, I think it's always funny how different it is, though, than medical school, right? And it's such a different perspective in that it's like if you graduate medical school, you're a doctor, right? And you can finish your residency like you're a doctor. And that like it gives you this right to do something that you can't do unless you're in the school. Business school is so different. Like uh, you go to business school, it doesn't make you a business person, right? Like and it doesn't it doesn't make you successful, nor does the lack of having gone to business school make you unsuccessful. You know what you think it does a great job what I loved is it gave me this understanding. Like I had these leadership experiences, management and people experiences. I had an undergrad in econ. So I knew about, you know, some sort of principles, but I knew nothing about accounting. I knew nothing about marketing. I knew, you know, and I knew nothing about, um, you know, competitive dynamics with firms. Right. And, um, it was a fun way, you know, it's a classically the, the, the curriculum is good about giving, making you an inch deep and a mile wide and all those sorts of things. So you certainly would not want me doing, uh, your accounting just cause I took two accounting classes in business school, but I can like talk to accountants. I can understand them. I, I can use silly jargon, like what's above the line and what's below the line. And that stuff's helpful. Um, I think for me and, a, um, and something that's really also, it's like a, a nice way to, to put press pause on a life or an existing career path, get to learn a ton, meet a lot of great people, contemplate for a couple of years what it is you want to do when you grow up, and then use that MBA a little bit to like figure out how to position you in a in a path, you know, of like okay, where you want to where you want to go. And mine was kind of get some credibility for having worked on campaigns and stuff, but think of that more as general leadership management skills, and then find a way to get myself into you know private enterprise right and that was so it ended up being amazing for me uh for that perspective so a favorite i mean i, I think probably what a lot of people do i met some lifelong friends there is my favorite um favorite time still you know until covid disrupted us still did a annual ski trip that we started in business school and i've done 13 straight years after with the same group of people find a new mountain and do it and in so the, like everything in life the, you know it's often the human connections which are the best and you went to yale and and i bring that up yeah. because it seems like um i'm not so sure how much uh, this phenomena exists in medical school because the thing with medical school is no matter where you are in the world in any medical school the the, the curriculum is basically the same anatomy yeah. doesn't change depending on the decade or the economic uh, who or, yeah. or the professor teaching it right uh, yeah. but I feel like business school is different the professors you have at the specific school who have their own theories on economics and, and business development and so on and so forth can really shape your views on things do you feel like you came across a professor or an instructor that that really to this day has helped form how you think about things like startups and the economy and growth yeah, I, I mean, I, um, um, I had a quite a few uh, folks that were that were important um, I, uh, to me. I mean, probably my favorite professor, Barry Nailboff, um, is an economist, really strong academic, um, theoretical work around game theory 
when I met him, I think he was a very popular professor, been there, been tenured forever, name share, that sort of stuff. But I think by some of the class was thought of as like this absent-minded professor academic that like doesn't really know business. You know, he had, however, co-founded a company called Honest Tea, which was a very um, uh, early stage thing that was being sold in cafes in New Haven in a couple of places with a with a student maybe I don't know five years earlier than me or something like that. And uh, now everyone knows Honest Tea because it did really well and they sold to coke for like a whole lot and um he's now done a couple other beverage startups and it was fascinating um you know partly that his idea was like very classic using theory to talk about how there was this space in the market between totally unsweetened tea and stuff that was essentially melted candy bars and that you know his basic i remember him talking in class about his basic ideas like we can create a better product than Snapple. And he's like, we just need to get big enough before they notice that we're going to matter, that we have a brand, you know, and he even back then was like, they were already having some success back when I was doing it, but it was like, you know, and it was, it was, uh, we're gonna, um, uh, you know, he's like, you gotta get, you gotta get to 50 million in sales because if you're younger than that, if you're smaller than that Coke and Pepsi, don't know what to do. But once you get to that phase, you can get, you can, get distribution from one of the existing things and then they know how to scock at you. And so they did that. They got, they like got themselves there. Uh, I don't understand the transaction, but I think they had a bidding war. I think they did well. And then um, I don't know if Coke bought them or bought part of them or something. And then like two years later, they're in every gas station, every grocery store, every place. And every time I go to a kid's uh, birthday party in pre-COVID era, there's little honest kids lemonade there you know which is like expensive and a little less yeah, unhealthy sure. than snapple and it was like man you know it's funny and that i think that taught me half of it i mean he never operated the businesses yeah. and there's so much about uh starting companies which isn't the sexy idea isn't the insight it's the grind right but you know i i remember him a lot i loved his classes learned a lot and that clarity of thinking about you know, how do I think about industries? How do I think about goals? And, and what's my opportunity there? Yeah. You know, and I always love those stories about, um, they, uh, I, the founding story, as I remember it, was that he and Seth, like, uh, came back, Seth came back from India with like um, some tea um, that um, was organic and they had a little like high quality sugar and they made their first batch. I think they might've literally taken a Snapple bottle or something like taken the sides off, brewed it, shaking it and then started to bring it to people and was like would you um like give them a sip of this stuff and it was like if we could figure out how to make this would you sell it you know and they were doing that in like natural food stores in new haven their their biggest win was i think you know because because professor nail buff was a tenured professor at Yale and new people and all that stuff. I think they got a meeting with the CEO of Whole Foods and that was the big break was like, if we could figure out how to manufacture this with scale, would you put it in some of your stores and see if it works? And they had it. It was like, yeah, this tea tastes pretty good. Let's do it. And it was off. And I always, I think I love that. I didn't leave the, I didn't leave business school knowing I was going to do startups or be an entrepreneur, but um, you know, now looking back, you could see some of the excitement from that story certainly colored maybe my career uh, and my choices. Yeah, egg on the face of those students who thought he was absent-minded. The guy seemed actually pretty damn clear, right? Like, I know, no, it's funny. I mean, he was—he just—he's like he had this, you know, 
curly hair and he like was he was like that classic professor that he bring all these papers in he's like losing stuff and all over but yeah it was you know some people were kind of yeah it's like oh you know sometimes in business school there are people that feel like oh the academic stuff i don't really want to do that what i want to do is learn from a retired investment banker or someone at mckinsey because that's where i want to go right yeah and it was yeah but no this guy was like yeah you know, pretty good. I mean, I think he's got now there's another chair at, at Yale named for him because he could donate enough money to the university <laughs> after that. So, you know, yeah, I think probably he's got a different esteem now when people like, uh, you know, startups are cool um, and he's got a lot more street cred. Never asked you this before, but actually, I mean, do you ever wonder if you could uh, if, if that could be part of your job, I mean, w would you want to be or take on some kind of visiting professor role or teacher class or be involved in the academic part of business? Um, yeah, I think that's fun. I mean, I think teaching, motivating people is great. I mean, it's, it's a real discipline in and of itself. I remember from, from business school, some of those people that weren't really academics or teachers, they were just, you know, a lot of them are like, I've been really successful. I want to do something fun and I'll teach. Some of them were amazing. Some of them were awful because like the discipline of teaching is really important. You know, like how do you, how do you thoughtful? How do you think about a lesson plan? How do you understand how to motivate and teach, you know, and explain and those sorts of things. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that stuff's fun. I mean, you know, I think finding ways to get connected with, young people that are smarter than you, you know, is just incredibly energizing always, whether or not that's as a building a company, staying connected with recent college grads that you're hiring or, or doing things like teaching. I think, I think those sorts of things can, can be inspiring. I would love to do them. I think I get a lot of value out of it at a time that I have, whether or not I'd actually be good enough at it, that it would make sense for the students to, to listen to me for a couple hours a week. I don't know. So, so, so you, you flew through Yale and you really loved it, which is, which is awesome. And then what was your next move? So, um, after grad school, I, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Cause it turns out you just like take accounting classes or marketing classes and you have spent some time on a campaign. Um, I was really tempted to join Barack Obama's presidential campaign. A friend of mine was the number two in the New Hampshire campaign. I actually took a week off school and helped them organize like the first couple of events um, and almost sort of did it. So sort I of said, I'm going to be the campaign <laughs> You're guy like, this that. sounds, this feels really familiar here. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm good I, at this. I was, I was really inspired by, by him. Um, and I was like, oh, but I just said, you know what? I, um, that'll turn me into like the campaign operative that got an MBA. Um, and I just said that it, I think it's going to make it hard to not follow that path. You know, you know, at that point, it was probably like, he's probably going to lose to Hillary, you know, whatever. I'll never work for the president, you know, so who knows it, you know, you know, so, so stayed and stayed, uh, excited about him, but then decided not to take that path. Um, and then did the classic punt, uh, which is become a management consultant, right? Because it's like, if you don't know what you want to be when you grow up, it's like, a high paying, interesting, prestigious thing that is really like applied business school and ended up finding a, um, a small firm called Katzenbach Partners. Uh, John Katzenbach had been a long time director at McKinsey and he and a few people left and formed a small firm. It was maybe 
I think eight years old when I joined or something, it was maybe 50 or 60 people um, and uh, was lucky enough, almost got an internship there and got turned down and then got in uh, touch and was, was fortunate to um, graduate in 07, which was before the economy started to be terrible and everybody was hiring a lot. I think, you know, one thing that's amazing, if I had gotten hired if I had graduated business school during a recession, right? So if I had been an 09 grad, not a 07 grad, I probably would have been just screwed because I had such a more limited professional base um, that it would have been really hard to get interviews. But I was lucky that a lot of people were hiring and um, uh, got that job at, at Cats and Back Partners and started, um, which was uh, awesome. I'm still really close friends, a lot of people there. And I can, I can tell a story as though I always knew that healthcare startup innovation was going to be the way to do private sector work in a public spirited way. And it's like a, a plan. But the reality was, I just happened to get staffed on a hospital case early mm. at Katzenbeck and was like, this is cool. Children's hospitals, fascinating, complex businesses. You know, what could be better than working to try to help, you know, them think about their strategy, take care of kids better, right? Um, you know, and then happened to get staffed on some other tech companies, just like the partners that I worked for and was servicing um, some big, um, you know, computer or storage or other businesses. And for the first couple of years of my consulting career, it was just kind of like two parts of my brain. One was like, you know, two thirds of the time I was doing healthcare stuff and one third of the time I was doing um, technology stuff. I didn't, I wasn't an expert in either. I was became, I was becoming good at making PowerPoint decks and doing analysis and like getting ready for executive meetings and all those things that management consultants do. Um, and then had a chance, um, uh, two things happened. My small firm, Kazabek Partners, got bought by Booz & Company, which is a much larger firm, uh, which has now been acquired by uh, PwC. Uh, but Booz had a really, really strong healthcare practice. Um, and two, during the recession, they had a, uh, when was that, maybe 2009, they had a, um, so two years into my career, they had a sabbatical program because they, they had laid off a bunch of people because the economy was bad and their business was shrinking. But then they also wanted to like cut people down, um, but uh, cut the uh, layoffs down. Uh, but they needed to get rid of payroll without wanting to fire people. And about that time, I was getting um, introduced to some people that were starting a healthcare team at the federal communication and the Obama administration. Um, and they needed someone that knew a little bit about tech, a little bit about healthcare to help. There's a small team that's gonna advise the commissioner of the FCC on kind of how to make sure the they didn't mess up the number one domestic priority, which was you know, uh, the Affordable Care Act or what we now call Obamacare. And um, so it's just like got super lucky that got this opportunity and almost got to combine two parts of my brain that hadn't been together and go work for a president that I was excited about and admired and and make it work financially because I didn't actually have to quit at Booz. And I, I got enough of my salary from that and my health benefits that that plus the government wage let me still pay rent and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I ended up doing that for about nine months. It's interesting when you think of like healthcare and you, you, you don't immediately think of the FCC, right? Like, and, and what kind of role they would even play in, in any national role out of any healthcare yep. program. But can you just give us an idea of how important that role actually is? It was fascinating. I mean, that was the reason we needed some people. We had to write this thing called the National Broadband Plan, which was uh, sort of stuck into the stimulus bill. Um, but uh, most of that was about 
a strategy to get broadband everywhere, right? But parts of it were around certain national purposes is what they called it. So energy, education, um, healthcare, right? Things that are really important priorities generally and priorities for a democratic administration. How do we think about the role of connectivity? Um, ended up being kind of two areas. Uh, one was the iPhone was pretty new then. And people were, I don't think, you know, Haley Tacko and others hadn't come up with the name digital health. We were calling it something, right? But um, there was this concept of, um, was the iPhone going to be regulated as a medical device if someone wrote software on it that touched a medical device or had something to do with healthcare? And the, no one knew, right, the FDA, you know, regulated drugs and it regulated devices. And some of those devices have software in them, right? Pacemakers have software in them that runs the hardware. And, and the, so they were really used to, okay, I know how to like regulate pacemaker software, but yeah. that felt like it was gonna be pretty different than an iPhone app, right? That was like tracking your calories. And it was like, what are we gonna do there? And so mostly the role that we got to play was the FDA was almost certainly going to stay and ended up staying the primary primary um uh regulatory body for that and we now have a whole apparatus about how kind of digital health is regulated by the fda it was trying to get the chairman and some people at the fcc to be at the table so like the um the regulatory mindset landed somewhere between the traditional fda and traditional fcc which is the fda's approach with a pill right it's like you have to do all these trials you have to tell us about the trials you know it's so much you go public before you even right have revenue right i mean it's a this huge process but it's all about asking permission right the fcc's approach to like cell phones is like get the get the industry together get them to self-regulate and then we'll find out if it's a problem or not right you know like these questions about whether or not having your cell phone in your pocket is going to cause testicular cancer or you know those sorts of things it's much of a let the industry do it have consortiums to, to look at it um and we knew that that was probably too hands off for where we should land, but maybe getting the FCC at the table with the FDA would get it to land in a place to say, hey, we need to bring some of the speed and simplicity of software lifecycle, software innovation to allow this industry mm -hmm. to, to be created. So um, I was several degrees away from those decision makers or whatever, but it was fun to be pushing. And it was, you know, like in, in the in practical ways, it was really like, where do we need to get Chairman Jenikowski invited to, right? Or some senior person at the FCC, just like what meeting should they show up at? So we're not just thinking about how will we regulate this the same way we do a pacemaker, but how will we think about a third way or a new way? That was a blast. The other thing the FCC does is um, it subsidizes broadband to rural hospitals, mm -hmm. spends um, a bunch of money. It's stuff that we've done since the 19-teens. You know, uh, you know how your cell phone bill, like they say it's going to be fifty nine ninety nine, and then it's like eighty seven bucks or whatever. Or, yeah. Um, <laughs> that thing in the middle is called the universal service fee, and it used to be government fees that um, essentially subsidize AT&T building telephone wires everywhere so that America could be the first place where you can have a telephone everywhere. And over the years, there's been more than just getting phone access. And part of it was um, getting internet connections or originally phone lines and then internet connections after rural hospitals. And we were trying to do a little bit on making that program more in line with what um, the stimulus bill did around getting people to digitize health records, right? And health information exchange and stuff like that. And we just frankly, wasn't... I don't think made a huge difference there. 
Yeah, but I think it was interesting to have those, but that the, that those conversations were having between two large organizations that have a lot of bureaucratic yeah. uh, layers because those things take time. I mean, if you think about it, that just wasn't that long ago. You we're talking about the iPhone was still new. That was two thousand seven. I mean, yeah, uh, I remember having a. Black so this was two thousand nine. We were like yeah. probably iPhone two. The app store was like becoming a real thing, and some early people, you know, uh, I mean, you started in this space digital health space a little earlier than me, this is you were thinking about it and some early innovators are like, I can use these, I can make an app that does something clinical that influences behavior, that tracks data, that does something. And yeah, it was, it was like just super early. It, it was an obvious, it was an obvious play from the very beginning. It's, I, I think, uh, I think people in the digital health space kind of, they kind of just weirdly, they by definition have become disillusioned or just frustrated. That comes from an area of frustration, uh, wherever of how things are, the status quo is being run. For me, it was like the hospital system and how uh, we saw patients and, and handled data and made decisions, and it just didn't make sense to me. Especially when you come home and you have other services like the iPhone, you're like, I'm using all these digital tools to do everything else in my life, and, and they, they seem to be a lot easier. It's just ridiculous that I have to go back and, and use Windows, yeah. uh, whatever, you know, 3.2 or whatever. In, in your mm -hmm. to, to take care of patients in the hospital, so it's like wait, we can do better. So it, it's it's it seems like it's always born out of some frustration versus some huge insight. Uh, but just looking back at these moves you're making here through these organizations and through school and campaigns, how much of this was, hey, this is the next. You're really clear about your next strategic move and you want to get to a certain goal versus I'm getting like the other extreme, which is I'm just getting super lucky and getting pulled into these things. And I keep saying yes. Yeah, way more super lucky for sure. Um, I definitely, it's funny, there's a great healthcare MBA program at Yale, right? Uh, you know, our mutual friend, Nicole uh, Bormanan was in it at the same time I was there, but we didn't we didn't know each other. Hmm. And it's funny, I'm like, man, I should have taken those classes. This stuff's fascinating. Like there's all these really smart professors, Howie Foreman there that does great work, interesting stuff. And I was like, man, I. I should have taken those. And I had no, no, you know, I didn't know. Uh, I, I just, I had this true North, which was, I didn't just want to do lobby and I just didn't want a government stuff, but I wanted the, I wanted a career that was going to make a difference in people's lives. Um, and I think my own superpower was that kind of that, that um, problem solving that, that Barry Nailbuff loved to do and talk about in competitive, in competitive strategy classes and stuff. And that thing was fascinating. And so it's like, you know, it ended up, it's just insane luck, you know, in a lot of these roles, but it was, you know, have a fun career that you advance, you're super successful, all that stuff that I wanted, uh, but also in a way that you felt like you could be, you know, your success was aligned with making the world a little better place and always had this sort of interaction with fascination with government and policy and the way that that healthcare just ended up being like, wow, that's it. You know, it's like super complex um, in ways that work to our detriment in a lot of ways, both the, the human body is insanely complex and the, the healthcare system we put around it in the United States is like almost as complex. And so, and then you mash those two together and it's like, 
a lot of complexity. So that's like intellectually fascinating and challenging to me. And that I think particularly now, even more so than 10 or 20 years ago, building a big business in the healthcare system is more aligned with taking great care of people, making them better, saving people money, getting them healthier. Um, that hasn't always been true. It's always been true about being a clinician, you know, in healthcare. It's not always been true about building a business in healthcare. <coughs> but, but um, you know, I think um, these trends that the Affordable Care Act was part of accelerating um, helped uh, help do that. And where you know, I just sort of got and found lucky. But that, like, getting you know, it's crazy. I'm remembering mm -hmm. it was a uh, the reason I got that uh, that job at the FCC was like an old friend of mine call he was he was my first boss in the campaign when i was an intern he had gotten a call about it he had just graduated business school didn't want to leave or, or was he still in business for something he was like i don't want to leave to take this gig but hey spencer you'd be great for it if you're interested right and i got connected with mo Ushel, right did this like quick interview and he was like hey you seem smart you seem like you know how to uh do some stuff and like hey you want to come down and work in dc and i was like yeah this seems neat and yeah. it was like so Knowing Mo, that's crazy, probably, fortunate, random, lucky, you know. Yeah, I, I think I think you're being exactly like that's word for word. I can imagine that's exactly like what he said, right? <laughs> like exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and then like everybody, I was, I was charmed by the British doctor, right? The British Indian doctor that like, you know, had that great accent and said, hey, we're going to go down oh. and do some cool stuff. He'd been doing venture capital work before, right? So no, that know, is the, I was hook, line and sinker. No, that is the missing piece of my portfolio. If I was from Britain, if I just, oh yeah, the I call them Brindians, yeah. British Indians. They're just like the most charming yeah. Indians you can get. You know, I just, I mm -hmm. can't, you can't, it's a, their peak charm. And and if, yeah, yeah. I, I would, it's, uh, uh, it's unfortunate. Anyway, um, so, so it's, so it's interesting because, so you're, you're taking these opportunities. Now, I just, I know that we're, we're going to delve into the digital health space pretty deep here. But before that, I just want to give an opportunity Management consulting gets a, a bad rap. I mean, to the point where you have TV yeah. shows that are making fun of it, right? That are satirical. Yeah. Um, here's your opportunity to to set the record straight. I loved it. It was great for me. Um, I learned a huge amount. I met some really talented people. You know, most of the projects I work on, um, I was proud of and we made a difference. But, um, you know, it's an interesting discipline. I mean, I can understand why. I think in many ways, they, along with investment banking, you know, one of their core competencies in the industry, the original one was like, we should use math to make decisions. And people didn't used to do that. But now everyone knows that, like, you should track data, you should use them. Right. You don't need a management consultant to use a spreadsheet, right? The second real innovation they had was we should find really, really smart people from school and pay them a lot of money, train them a lot, and then charge them out to big companies at a seven times markup on what we're paying them, uh, you know, and use, and, and um, so that was awesome because they really invest in training. Um, they really invest in thought, but I think a lot of other people are catching up to that too, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, there's some great work that happens. I've got some friends that ended up staying in it a long time, but they've been really proud of their work. You know, it's just this week, uh, the news hit um, that McKinsey's paying hundreds of millions of dollars to taxpayers now uh to settle the the oxycotton grossness that happened and yeah you know, the vast majority of people at mckinsey didn't do that right it's probably it's a dozen gross people or something um and um that most of their work they do is incredibly ethical and people that do that work are trying to do the right stuff but it's gross but i think in reality I mean, a lot of those projects they get paid a lot of money to fight 
internal wars in inside organizations, right? One VP wants to do something, but they, they need to fire people, but they don't want to blame themselves. So they hire a consultant to tell them to fire people, right? Or, or um, you know, they want some protection with their board or something like that. So they have someone else do it. So sometimes that brings a lot of insight. Um, sometimes it's like, um, the answer's already known before you start and they pay yeah. you $400,000 to make a PowerPoint, um, which is, you know, so I, I think some people find great careers there. It's, it's high paced. If you like to travel a lot and do that, if you like a new problem every time, it's great. But for me, what ended up being, I knew it wasn't my long-term career. I just wasn't wired to be an advisor, right? It was like, you know, four months in, five months in, it's like, I think I really know what to do here. I could, we could make a difference. And then you're like, see you later, good luck. And you're like, oh, but they, they're not gonna understand this. You know, there's all these things that you say, they're gonna mess up my recommendation. The other reality is probably you actually only know it at 10,000 feet. And there's so much more complexity if you get to the ground level and you're not actually solving the whole problem because you never got there before you have to move on. Yeah, and you and you seem like you were task switching a lot too. Like you said, most of it was in healthcare, but then like in one week you're like in Azerbaijan working on an oil pipeline yeah. or something like that. You're like, what yeah, am I yeah, doing yeah, here? Yeah, something like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah exactly. You show, I mean, sometimes it's just preposterous, right? I mean, you know, You've either, you know, a lot of people that are more advanced in their career have seen the bad side of this, which is like some some executive hires some fancy management consulting firm, but then really what you find out, it's like a 25-year-old that didn't know what your industry was two months ago that's like making a deck to give you a recommendation. It's like, come on, you know, you're not really bringing insight. So sometimes yeah. that outside perspective, diversion thinking, you know, things from other industries can be helpful. Other times it's like, you know, hey, you don't know enough here. So I want to um, I, I want to give you the opportunity to, to really to transition into telling us the story of, of, of concert. I know you were involved in some digital health things before and you and I worked yep. together on projects, but can you describe how you how you transition through those projects into concert? Yeah, so you know, you and I had a great run at reflection. I think that's a great work, but you know, had kind of a an unsatisfying ending, right? You know, which without getting into all the details, it was the company, there's a lot that had worked, but not everything, you know, and uh, a lot of unfinished work. And we had some big disagreements with the majority owner. Um, and, and um, you know, when you, uh, when you don't, even though we had fancy titles, CEO and chief medical officer, co-founder, right? When you don't own the company, you don't, you don't own the company, right? So you, you, you know, at some point, um, all you get to decide is whether or not you're going to keep showing up to work, right? And uh, we didn't. So I left that with really two passions. One, um, uh, three three things, right? I knew I loved starting things. It was like, that's fine. I caught the bug. So let me go start something. And let me go prove that I can do this right the next time, you know? The second was, I think that you and I at Reflection kind of pre-decided that that was going to be a software company because it's like that's what you do when you're in California and the software and healthcare sucks but you know what we learned at reflection was always like well yeah but to make it work we need to make great software but we need to get the physical that was in the msk space right so we need to get the physical therapist to act differently oh it's hard to get them to act differently without paying them differently right and then oh i got to get them to work with the surgeon differently and yet this like this great software platform that you know our team built was part of it but so much of the win was this practice redesign mismatch. And so I think I left saying, listen, I think almost certainly any any business is a technology company now, but let me just go find, let me just go solve a problem that I'm passionate about. 
and then decide what type of business it's going to be right not prejudge it to be i'm going to sell software mm-hmm. um, and i thought in in a lot of cases particularly if you're focused on people that are really sick and you think of this in your own life like when i when when a family member is really sick i don't rush to the app store to find out like what's the best app right I call you, right? Or I call three doctor friends and I'm like, okay, this is yeah. what's wrong. Who's the doctor that knows a lot? Or who's the psycho- psychologist, the therapist that knows a lot about the space and let me get smart. But what do you do? You, I mean, you, you put your hands and how do I find the best clinician to, to, to trust, right? For my parents, for my right. loved ones, for whatever. And, and, and so I think if you're, if you end up building a business that's going to solve a problem of helping take care of people that are really sick uh, better, it's going to include a lot of clinicians and 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 that i think led me down to sort of say hey maybe we'll actually build you know what the tech jargon would be as a tech enabled services business right or a provider organization you know still be a startup you know still do mm-hmm. things still try to build a big company still maybe take venture capital investment but do it in a way that um is authentic to what how do you solve the problem um and then finally based on that experience it was like okay i want to i want to control my own destiny and that was going to be bootstrapping from the beginning so, you know, we spent, spent some time advising some companies, you know, trying to pretend that I was an impressive entrepreneur when really I was an unemployed guy, what the next adventure would be. And that was kind of a maybe six, seven month journey um, until I found my way to this program in Colorado, that's now called X Genesis and, and kind of discovered a clinical model of care called collaborative care management, which fascinated me and really became the nugget of what has become Concert Health. Well, can we just take that, can we dissect that six to seven month period that you talk about? Because I think, again, another formative, really formative period, right? Where maybe most, uh, like a lot of other people should invest in. Uh, It almost seems like you went through a a spiritual professional journey there, right? Where you were exploring, (laughs) learning. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is really lucky that I married up um uh back there on the carry campaign and found Lori and and i remember you know when when we were deciding to leave reflection it was like um we were taking a path and it's like i'm pretty sure i'm gonna have some version of quitting or getting fired and it's probably gonna happen next week you know and and um and they were wanting us to stay wanting us to do some stuff with kind of golden handcuff type stuff and it was kind of a F you. It was, a, it was a, this isn't consistent with my priorities or my values. And, and I think the better answer is to walk away, but lucky to do that. Cause I had a wife that supported me and a wife that, that works. And we had been lucky to have already bought our house. We had a, a, a decent little nest egg, uh, not as big as we would have loved, but you know, something and, and, you know, it wasn't like if I don't have this paycheck, I got to have a paycheck in two weeks or else I can't make rent and, you know, I can't make, pay my mortgage. So I was really lucky to both have that support and her to say, you'll figure it out, you know, but it was a lot. I mean, you and I, you know, it was, it was some legal stuff that you, we had to fight through and that was super distracting and demoralizing. Um, now when other people have that moment, whether or not it's as painful as what ours was or others, I, I give them the advice to not do what I did, which is kind of, I like pretended I was still working. I'd like go to a coffee shop at 9.30, stay there till four. I was like on email all the time, setting up meetings, doing calls. But I was like, I wasn't really ready to jump into something, you know, um, but what I should have done is like actually take a month or two off and just like been a dad to my young kid at that point or, you know, mm-hmm. traveled or done something. And I, I kind of stayed in this bridge in which I kind of wanted to, maintain the fiction that I was still 
busy when I wasn't really ready to dive in. I actually needed some time to just calm down and heal and figure out what I wanted to do. But, yeah. you know, a couple of ideas that I kicked around. There's one friend of mine um, uh, that I had met. We, we wanted to start a um, palliative care business together. Got excited about it, had a bunch of conversations, but kind of couldn't get anybody to buy it. You know, and uh, so like it, it was like it never became a company. It was an idea. There was a deck. There was a lot of time spent on it. I was still excited. I still think we could have done something good, but it was like it wasn't quite clicking. Like we couldn't find that this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to make money. This is how we're going to generate value. So ended up putting that to the side. And then uh, that summer came across collaborative care management and this this kind of model of how do you integrate behavioral health services into primary care. Um, and I was just fascinated by how much it made sense and how great the evidence base was and, and their stuff would line up a little bit quicker. So explain to me like you're like I'm a five-year-old. I mean, just what really clicked about this collaborative care model? Yeah, so, you know, basically the core insight of the psychiatrists and others that created the model was they said, listen, there's not enough psychiatrists. Nobody wants to come see us. So even if you can see one, you don't want to come. And it's, it was a dumb idea to think that we should treat depression separately from everything else, right? Because it's like, it's not, it's, not a, it's not separate. Your head is not disconnected from your body, right? Your diabetes and your depression aren't separate. They're, they're feeding off one of each other and they're making each other worse and they're making each other harder. And so you got to manage it together. And so, you know, that said, hey, we, we need, the reality is primary care physicians need to be managing the majority of depression and anxiety because they're managing the rest of the stuff and there's not enough psychiatrists. You can't just send everyone with depression out. The other core insight um, of, of what became collaborative care was the recognition that we have a lot of evidence-based treatment for depression and anxiety, but nothing that works for everybody. So it's not this neat decision tree, like, okay, you have this, I give you this med or you do this thing and you'll get better. It's like, no. There's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of therapy interventions, behavioral activation, motivational interviewing, problem-solving therapy, right? You know, and dozens. Um, there's a bunch of meds that work, right? There's different types of SSRIs, this is NRIs, right? There are all these other things. And the, but the reality of best-in-class care is you need to, one is make sure you're only doing the stuff that's evidence-based. You don't do kind of stuff that doesn't work. But even if you are doing stuff that does work, you have to find out if that's working for that person. You know, and it's some motivation. Are they receptive to that med, right? Biochemically, you know, what are the side effects to that medication? And is that something they can put up with? You know, um, what form of therapy are they willing to start? Are they willing to go on a journey with? And what ends up actually having a mechanism? And so the core insight, and not only do primary care physicians need to be central, it needs to be integrated, but you need to have, you know, what I like to call an engineering mindset, which is you are constantly evaluating symptom severity. And then you're judging your success against that. And if whatever intervention you're doing isn't making the symptoms get better, then you got to do a new intervention, right? And so, you know, what collaborative care is, is to say, listen, you need to be screened in your primary care office, which is just essentially every year you should get this basic survey or these other ways in which you can find out. Don't just ask someone, um, what, don't expect a person to just ask their doctor for a referral for therapy or to say, I think I'm depressed or, or to be obviously weeping in the office or something like that, right? Because that only is gonna catch 20%. So you need some way to ask people structured questions. Hey, are you sleeping well? What's your energy level? You know, have you thought in the last couple of weeks about uh, that you'd be better off dead, 
right? Those kind of questions. You have to ask them systematically around every year for everybody and around major health events because a lot of people are going to say, yeah, I kind of am sleeping like crap. And, and uh, yeah, like my mood's really bad and I don't see friends anymore. And you got to answer that and their score will pop up on that. It's like, okay, we need to talk about this person because they might not realize it or they might not be ready to, to, to vocalize it, but, but they're struggling and we should and can help them. Um, and then, and then you and make it, um, easy for it to happen. You don't need to say, I have depression. I'm going to go see a therapist. Your primary care doctor can say, you know, Hey Spencer, looks like you're having trouble sleeping. I'd love to introduce you to a woman named Jennifer. And, um, she helps me with a lot of my patients are doing the same thing. And I'd love her to reach out to you in between my visits. She could do it on the phone. She could do it on, um, a video visit, whichever is easier for you and just check and see how things are going. You know, if I want a therapist, you can say, Hey, Jennifer's my in-house therapist. But if I, if I, don't want a therapist. I don't think I need one. It's just Jennifer's part of my team, right? She's a really talented clinician and she can do it. For some people should just check in on meds. Are you taking them? How's it making you feel? Symptom monitoring. Sometimes it'll be full on psychotherapy, you know? Um, and sometimes it'll be somewhere in the middle. The patient probably doesn't think it's therapy or doesn't describe it you're doing goal setting together you're getting them to exercise more you're getting them to reach out to friends more things like that you know which is a you know derivatives of cognitive behavioral therapy that we know works but doesn't need to get into the the language of i recognize i have depression i need a therapist it's just i need to sleep better i need better energy i need to be engaged with my friends and and that's the world that we all live in as people you know, we don't, we don't diagnose ourselves normally first. It's like, here's the problem in my life, you know, and, and great. And, and uh, a primary care team enabled by um, a collaborative care model has that care manager, what we call behavioral care manager. Those are like a licensed social worker that's mm -hmm. doing that. The Jennifer, and that's the example I just gave you. Um, then the other part of the model is each week, each of our Jennifers, each of our care managers gets a one hour superpower, which is they talk to one of our psychiatrists or psychiatric nurse practitioners, reviewing the, the information on who's not getting better. Um, so, um, you know, uh, whose scores, whose depression scores or anxiety scores aren't getting better, whose suicidality risk isn't falling. And then they just get their heads together and say, if it's not working, what do we change? Do we have the diagnosis wrong? Do we have the med wrong? Do we have the therapy wrong? Do we, are we asking the wrong questions? And just sort of saying, we're responsible for getting that patient better. So if what we're doing is not working yet, we got to change something, right? And then have that accountability to come together. The psychiatrist is not taking over the care from the from the primary care physician, but there is a consultant, there is a guider. So what they would do in practice is during that one hour, they have the um, EMR of the PCP pulled up. And if they have a recommendation on a new med, a different diagnosis, they write it as a note to the primary care physician for them to act on. So PCP, she stays the quarterback. Um, she stays the prescriber, but with a lot more support behind her, both on just people keeping dibs on patients, finding out who's getting better, who's not, um, intervening on the psychotherapy side, and then having someone that can help her make medication diagnosis decisions for those folks and know when someone needs more support than they can be provided in, in, in primary care and be the bridge to get them into a different level. Why do you feel so strongly that the primary care, uh, you know, the, the, the center of the Venn diagram here still has to be primary care? Uh, you, I mean, you're, you're abs everything you're saying about this model, for example, yeah. makes a lot of sense. 
right? It yep. actually calls attention to the fact that the broken way we were doing it before doesn't make a lot of sense because yep. this this idea of treating, you know, the body is a system. It's not like yeah. a bunch of it's not an it's not a bunch of machinery, you know, with a soul in the brain. Like I think how yep. some psychologists sometimes see it. It's like these things are interconnected. So it makes a lot of intuitive sense and probably makes a lot of intuitive sense to patients. Like when you talk to patients, you yeah. go, you're not sleeping really. Like of course not. I feel depressed all the time. But it's, they're like, why don't you doctors get this? Like that's the kind of interactions I've had with. With, yep. with patients when dealing with this, they they're confused on why we don't get it, and it's we don't get it as physicians because yeah, yeah. we're we're because of other outside issues like logistics, uh, the way we built medical schools, the training, the complexity of the brain versus complexity of other organ systems, we've siloed it um, into into different modules, and then we decide to go train in these different modules that we we like to practice in. Um, so, but why do you feel like primary care still needs to be at the center of this? Well, um, a few things. I think the patient needs to be at the center, you know, um, for sure, right? This needs to be patient-centric. Why primary care physicians being the primary entry point or coordinator? Um, a couple reasons. Um, there's enough of them, right? So we have enough primary care physicians to see most people in the country, um, and we don't have enough psychiatrists. So there's no answer in which everybody with depression sees a psychiatrist for half an hour every other week. We, there's like, there's, we won't have enough. Um, second is this issue of they're the only ones that when done right are kind of able to see the whole picture, right? And recognize how your behavioral health symptoms are interacting with the rest of your chronic conditions. They're that broad quarterback. The third is the trust that many of them have with patients, right? And so, people will go see their, uh, not everybody, you know, certainly younger people are less likely to be connected. Um, and, um, but there, for a lot of folks, they'll come there and they wouldn't ever seek out or want, a, you know, a therapist or a psychiatrist, but that's the place you can identify and realize that's something they're struggling with um, and, uh, and support them, right? To be your, you know, the jargon or the lingo would be your real medical home. I mean, I, I'm inspired by the work that others are doing just to build new types of psychotherapy businesses, whether or not they're online, like the Teladocs and the Liras or, you know, or, or uh, reimagining the in-person experience, like uh, Two Chairs or Foresight or some exciting companies. And, and there's a lot of people that don't have venture funding, don't have a brand, but they just do great work as therapists operating independently. And it's not a one size fits all, but if we're going to, if we're going to say everybody in this country deserves access, um, and deserves great care, um, I think primary care has to be a really important entry point for that, particularly for those people where their behavioral symptoms, conditions are one of a panoply of medical issues that they're dealing with. So concert really is your, your, your way of bundling up all these services and methodologies and protocols to apply them. To, to health systems. Yeah. yeah, and we started it um, because we found out, so, you know, back in 2016, when I got, the idea was amazing. So not only, I mean, you talk about it, it's like, it makes sense, but there's a lot of things in medicine that make sense. And then we study them rigorously and then it'll work. You know, I mean, you, you've taught me this, right? The importance of, of evidence building, of randomized control studies of these things. There's very few health services interventions that I think have as good of a, track record of being rigorously proven. There's something like 80 prospective randomized control studies that have demonstrated this 
model outperforms primary care by itself, outperforms traditional behavioral health in all sorts of different populations, different geographies, different ages. You know, it's gotten repeated over and over again. And that is what clicked because it was, I think this is frankly the thing that you taught me, right? Is that matters. Evidence building matters. It matters to doctors, it matters to health plans, and it, and it should matter. And, and this was like, not only does this intuitively make sense, but it actually feels like it has the burden of proof. It has the evidence. And like, why aren't I getting this care? Why isn't my, why aren't my family getting this care? Why aren't my friends? Why aren't people across the country getting this? And, and I started to get fascinated by that. And it wasn't too long after that I heard that Medicare was going to create a, a reimbursement schema for it. So I create a new code right in our lingo, which means something you can, you can send in and they'll send you back money. Right. And, and, but to do it, you needed to, instead of paying everybody separately, the model was to pay one payment into primary care on a monthly basis. But primary care had to have assembled this three-person team of Avengers, the PCP, the behavioral health provider, what we call the behavioral care manager and the site yeah. consultant. You needed to show that you were built a patient registry and you were tracking outcomes. You know, you needed to show that you were focused on treat to target approaches and that you were documenting that. And, you know, you needed to show how much time you were spending um, per patient per month because the codes were billed based on how much time you spent. And um, then it was like, oh man, that's it. Like starting at that point, it was like in six months, in seven months, there's going to be a way to get paid for this for the first time everybody that's over 65 in America, you know, and it was like, but then it said, if, if we are going to ask each doctor to figure this out, it's not going to happen. It's not gonna happen for 30 years. Cause they don't even, it's like a code goes live. Great. It's like on some press release somewhere. Yeah. It shows up in reports. They don't know it, you know, they, and then even after they know the codes live, it's like, well, what is this? They got to go study the model, learn about it. Then as a yeah. business, make a decision that I'm going to get into the business of hiring social workers and psychiatrists, figuring out how to do this, figuring out how to staff it, figuring out how to bill it. And then it'd be the right. And it's like, man, that's a lot of way. A lot of times they could say, I'm too busy. I don't know how to do this. You know? So it's like, what happens if we built an organization that was the easy button for them? You know, and and yeah. and said, and 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 that was when the realization was, we actually need to build a medical group, right? I, and the, it's not, yes, there's going to be a care management platform, yes, there's going to be software, but I don't think all the primary care offices out there are like, I'm dying to hire social workers, I'm dying to hire psychiatrists, I'm going to become an expert on how to build and this model. But you know what I really need is a SaaS license for a slick product that lets me manage my patients. It's like no. The problem's bigger than that. The problem's deeper than that. And so that's when it became clear. I needed to co-found this with a clinical leader, right? Not a, not, not a technology, not just a technologist. And, and, you know, what we decided pretty quickly in that exploration was that we need to, to make this work, we need to employ phenomenal clinicians and create a great career path for them. You know, and that's when we knew Concert Health would be a provider organization, not a SaaS company. Yeah, but Spencer, when I'm listening to this, I mean, amazing work with what you've done so far. But I, I again, want to focus, I want to ask you um, a little bit more about how you went from zero to one on this. Because you use the, the term Avengers. It took Marvel about $5 billion, five movies, and lots of, you know, lots of logistics to yeah. get the Avengers together in that sure. fictional universe. 
you're, you just described, you know, three or four different types of providers, uh, five actually, in addition yeah. to other co-founders and things. How do, how were you able to, I mean, you're going from, I need to take some time off to figure out what I wanted to do. I went to a conference, got really inspired. Yeah. I now I've, you're forming this, uh, this Rube Goldberg machine in your head, all yeah. the moving pieces that need to be in place. How do you not just get crushed at that step and go, I don't know if I can do this. Even with the co-founder, like this is just way too much. And there are people who've tried this before and I have to involve myself, not just in an operational level, but you had a lot of learning to do on the clinical side too. You have to be very familiar mm. with, the, with the clinical facts around mental health and mental disease. How did you yeah. even tackle that problem? Well, another spot that I got lucky uh, two, 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 like incredibly fortunate things. One was, you know, I ended up discovering this problem because of this program called X Genesis. I met this uh, amazing guy, Tom Higley, who's building a program. And it basically is the idea that all the accelerators out there are kind of geared towards first time founders that already have ideas. Um, and his idea was what if we create a program for multiple time founders that explicitly don't have the idea? His thesis, which I think is a neat one, is that serial entrepreneurs get mediocre ideas too far because they have too much credibility and they know how to do it so they can raise capital, they can assemble teams. And then like three years later, it's like, oh, this idea wasn't good enough. So he's like, we need more idea on what's the problem, right? And so what he created in Denver, and this is where I came up, met the idea was come to Denver. At that point, it was 10 days. I think now it's a month. And I'm going to introduce you to 10 wicked problems in healthcare. You spend 10 days, all we'll do is give you egregious access to national experts about these 10 problems. And hopefully if, if nothing speaks to you, just like go on and you wasted 10 days of your life. If something speaks to you, found a company, you know, and if you found a company with it, kind of there on the cap table in a small way to sort of say, hey, we helped you get there and we, we brought a network and the idea. So that helped me do diligence way faster than I could have ever to like really get conviction that this would be neat. Um, then when I found out Medicare is gonna, but it was, that was like collaborative care made sense. I was kind of doing all the normal things that healthcare entrepreneurs do. It's like, well, maybe I'll sell this to self-insured employers. Maybe, um, you know, maybe there's a capitated system like Kaiser, you know, it was like, but I kind of, it was like the, the, the value was there, but so often in healthcare, it's like, you kind of have a sense of like, what where you could make the world better but then you know to build a company or to make sure a company is the right vehicle to do better it has to also be like well how would i have revenue who would i make happy who would i make bad you know how do you put it together and that was where i was spinning a little bit once medicare was moving that was like it started to click but then i just asked everybody i met in that program like who's the clinical expert and not just like the researcher like like he or she can do um um RCTs and like publish stuff, but like who's the builder, the doer, the administrator. And like, I asked like five people this and like three of them gave me the same name, Verna Little, right? And one of them was silly enough to give me her cell phone. So I just called her out of the blue and like named just enough to have credibility. It turned out she was gardening at the time. And I was like, hey, this thing's coming. And she knew it was coming because she was on the advisory panel. She had been implementing collaborative care in her clinic as a senior vice president of behavioral health for 15 years at one of the biggest Medicaid uh, federally qualified health clinics in New York State, had been a national advisor. So she knew it was coming, the reimbursement. She knew more more about the model then than I've forgotten now. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, she still knows a, a thousand times what I can do, but it was 
you know, I sort of said like, someone needs to build an organization that can partner with primary care groups to do this, or they're never going to do it. And that was like, she, she was like, of course, but I don't know what that means. Like, I have a kid in college, I've had the same job for 15 years, you know, so I was like, oh, I know a little bit about starting things. And so, you know, then it was, you know, first zero, you know, it was really zero to one was getting her bought in. Um, and um, I flew to New York like that same week and we ended up meeting in the, in a conference room of an old friend of mine's and spent the whole afternoon sketching out like what the business could be. I think the name, she actually just told me this recently, I'd already come up with the name concert apparently by that. Um, uh, cause I knew we needed to work in concert with primary care, but I didn't know much else. And we sketched it and, and I knew we wanted to, I knew I wanted to bootstrap the business. I could put some of my own money in, but certainly couldn't hire her. Yeah. Um, and you know, she had a kid in college, like she couldn't take career risks. So she started as a founding advisor essentially and worked for nights and weekends. Um, you know, and it took us probably a year. We needed to wait six months for the Medicare guidance to come out and find out like what the details would be think about how we could price it. I was fortunate to have started a company before. So, so a law firm would let me like incorporate and, and not make me not let me pay my legal bills as we figured out how could you contract for it? You know, what would those vehicles look like? And, and but really what that was at the time was like a contract, a PowerPoint yeah. deck, me and Verna. And then what I just started to do was kind of cold call. It was only Medicare then. So we picked Arizona, Colorado and, and uh, California, I just started like calling medical groups, you know, and sort of saying like, hey, do you have problems treating behavioral health? Like, would you like help? You know, and um, a lot of people said, who they have, who are you? And they ignored us and stuff. But eventually, you know, we probably started pitching that. And five, six months later, we had a couple of small practices in, in Arizona in particular that um, said, yeah, it's a real problem. And um, uh, yeah, I'll try you out, you know, and then, um, and then Verna still wasn't full-time, but we started hiring part-time social workers and part-time psychiatrists in Arizona to do this work, you know, and Verna was managing them clinically while having a 70 hour a week job. And, and I was, um, you know, trying to keep the lights on and, and do our early technology prototyping on our, on our patient registry. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's just, I can't help but notice, you know, you talk about cold calling and everything and everything you talked about at the beginning of this interview about learning how to campaign, cold call, yeah, make all these right. connections. I'm still bad at it though. I still like when someone's mean <laughs> to me, I still go walk around the block. I, I would get so fired so quickly if I was a sales development rep at a, at a stage startup, right? Cause there it's like pound the phones, you know, it's a numbers game. You make 120 calls. If five of them are good conversations, that's five good conversations every day. You can feed that in. And I'd like someone's mean to me and I like hang up. I walk around the block. I go to the ocean. I wonder what I'm doing with my life. You know, I, I, I think just about it. It's just like that. you got to hang out, make the next call, you know. Well, how do you? I was going to ask you about that, how you deal with the rejection of this. Because I think a lot of it's, uh, you know, everyone is seeing the, the, the balls that go through the hoop, but they don't see the ones that you miss. Yeah. And can you tell us what, about I mean, some one of thing misses? is, you know, yeah, we were, we were lucky at, we had always been pretty well resourced. So we kind of had money at the beginning to hire a team immediately. Um, there's good and bad from that. You know, uh, I didn't do that at concert, so there was no team, you know, it was just me doing it. And, and, and that creates some necessity. The, you know, the other thing I remember going, oh, if you could rewind it, I could have done that for so many millions of dollars less, you know, now. And I was like a concert, I'll do it perfectly. And now now looking back four years earlier, you're like, oh, my God, I could have 
save hundreds of thousands of dollars early, you know, if I just not been dumb. You know, I think one lesson is like, don't think about trying to scale um, too quickly. Like you first just got to figure out like, can you create value in the world? And you do that as an unscalable as possible. I wasted a lot of time, like sometime like thinking about what our market, it's like my old MBA coming back. Okay, this is what will be, this is how big the business will be. This is how we're gonna like do a financial model in three years. And some of that works useful, but really what we need, all we needed to prove was like, I mean, we knew Verna could do this model. She'd done it at scale. She could take, she's a social worker and psychologist. She could take great care of patients. You know, what we needed to know is like, would a primary care office say, yeah, I'll do this with us, right? Because what we do is contract with them, deliver care together and get paid together from, you know, from health plans. So it's really like, can I get a doctor or a medical group to say yes, that we want a partner, you know? Can we then deliver good care, mm -hmm. you know, with this joint team? And will health plans really pay us for it? You know, will patients be happy? Um, is the, will the health plans pay us enough money that we can pay our team, that we can have margin, that we can grow? And, you know, we did a bunch of stuff early on and that but that was all we needed to do right so yeah you know now it's simple but you look back but part of that is like you know it is interesting one thing i learned is we we learned we realized quickly that we'd start with like small medical groups because like big health systems they're like they're not they're not going to want to do this when no one's done it before right they're risk averse and, and they'll also answer the question hey could you support you know here in town sharp scripts could you support the volume I would give you is 600 physicians. No, I can't support that. It's like me and Verna, right? Of course not. That's like, you know, you, you're taking care of hundreds of thousands of people that need help. You know, yeah. you know and, and I don't know, we, we always like to give health systems like, you know, crap for being too risk averse, but it would be stupid for them to be the first person in some ways, you know? So we, we realized like, like, let's go find three physician practices, five physician practices, someone that really feels this acutely and they can take a little more risk on sure i'll sign this contract sure we'll see if it works together you know let's 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 do it and one thing i realized which I, I i would not have expected was like i knew all these doctors and i knew all these i've been in healthcare for 10 years but the world of big health systems you know academic medicine you know it's a different universe than private practice it's like you know mm -hmm. They don't know each other, right? They're, they're, private practices are not on LinkedIn. You know, it's like all this stuff. And so it took me a while to like, how do you get in front of these people? How do you do I it? I wasted a bunch of time trying to buy Google AdWords and do all these things that that would be cool, right? And like social and marketing funnels. And it's like, what? And the only thing that worked was like, cold call the front desk, say, I'm a new behavioral health medical group in town um, with a little bit different model in which instead of referring out to us, we work together we care for patients together and um, we build this new code. And, you know, do you want to learn more about that? And, and do you see a lot of patients, depression, anxiety? Do you have trouble getting them to specialists? And even if they get to specialists, are you frustrated that you don't find out what's happening with them and you can't really coordinate it? And they all say yes to that. And enough of them said, yeah, let's take a meeting. And, you know, and we're convinced enough that we could do it, that they, they let us get going. So it was right, kind of right at the end of, 2017, really a year and a half, uh, two years after we left Reflection, a year and a half after we, I came up with the deal was when we like started like caring for patients in a systematic way. When when you walked into those meetings initially, right? When they said, okay, I, we'll give you a chance. We'll hear you out. Seems interesting. What did you walk into that meeting with? 
like a um, a five page keynote presentation that um, I would go to Kinko's with and get it the nice spiral bound um, book and a black back. So it like looked official, you know, um, and a 10 page legal agreement that uh, DLA Piper drafted for us kind of uh, without me paying them for it yet. And, um, and then either Verna or one of our early part-time social workers, you know, they would say like, this is the model. This is how it's going to get paid. This is the contract you need to sign for us to do it. And here's the person that'll take care of your patients. How do you feel about people who say, because you know, there's the short squeeze area of time, right? I feel like there's this adolescence that you went through where you're just squeezed on both ends. You don't have the money to go to hire the help you need. So you gotta, you have to do 10 jobs, each one of you, yep. but you're also taking a lot of risk and um, really putting yourselves out there. You're very liable, uh, liable for a lot of promises that you, you're going to have to make that you have to, you have to come good on. Did that ever feel uncomfortable? Yep. Did, you, did you ever feel like you were faking it before you were making it, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's always that aspect, right? You know, you got to sell the vision, you know, fudge as if you're a, uh, real organization when you barely exist yet, you know? Um, but our view was always to be, I, you know, so there's a, there's a bit of salmonship there, but I, I think it's always to be pretty level. And, and in fact, actually, um, one of the things we've learned over the years, I wasn't nearly as good at this when we started, is to, re, is to like not overpromise doctors and make it really clear you know what you're talking about, right? So like, not just, oh, this is like, the rate that you think you're going to get insurance, but this is what we actually get paid and what your denial rate is or what your co how much your co-pays you'll collect and starting to almost give them more bad news up front. It's like, Oh, you know, my world, like you live this, like, you, you know, you know, that like there's a lot more than just, Oh, it's theoretically a code or, or this, this, there's a research paper about this. It's like how this works in practice. And, and the more you're almost pessimistic and not overselling it early the way it works. The nice thing about us, and, and I think it's true with a lot of clinical services companies, is we know there's a lot of technology enablement that we're going to do, but we were really lucky. I mean, I was sitting there with a licensed psychologist and social worker, still licensed. She has 20 years of experience doing this. She's cared for thousands and thousands of people herself in a primary care setting and currently had a day job in which she was managing 300 behavioral health providers. So it's like the idea that we couldn't take care of our first 20 people, you know, Verna couldn't figure out by hook or by crook, she'll just call them and do great care. But if it's not her, we're going to find a great social worker or nurse that's going to do it. And under her guidance, it's like, so that really, um, really helped, you know, it's not all, but, but having that, because at low scale, you know, we know how to do that. I mean, so you have to have this vision of why you think it'd be big, you know, why I, I wouldn't be the right person to found a business or interested in if we thought we'd be a small private practice therapy business in suburban Phoenix, you know, um, but um, we could operate as if we were one at the beginning, because it's, it's like all we're proving is we can get doctors to sign the contract, uh, we can deliver great care together, and the plans will pay for it the way we expected, you know, and then the rest is is after that. Did anyone ever talk to you, try to talk you out of it, out of starting concert? Um, yeah, I mean, there were, you know, there were times that I thought about talking myself out. You know, this is, again, I'm incredibly fortunate. This was two years before we really operated in business. I didn't make a dollar that um, 
could float the family, right? And and frankly, float the family in a way that we could live uh, as if we were a busy two family, two income family, like have a nanny for the kids and have them in preschool and all these things that most people have no hope of doing, right? Like it's uh, incredibly lucky and putting a huge amount of financial and psychological stress on Lori to float the family, working her butt off, make a ton of money um, and have it all go to covering our expenses and to pay concert, you know, cause we were the first investors in, in concert and every, uh, every four or five weeks asking her to, Hey, is it all right if I write another $10,000 check from our HELOC, um, into the company account, you know, um, you know, it's interesting. I remember I talked to another entrepreneur that had bootstrapped and cause that would, that was new to me. And I told him that I would do six months and $50,000. And he was like, you're going to do at least double that money wise. And, couple of years and i was like no that's not gonna happen and he was like he was exactly right and i was totally wrong right but it's i mean it's a fascinating thing when you start businesses when you decide to we glorify it but there's real you're on a path and you're like if i stop now that's gonna be really embarrassing because i gotta go pay this heloc back like we didn't really you know it's like we were you know our house was paid for we didn't have the cash at that point and it was like that's gonna be that's a, that's like egg on your face, you know, and it's like, man, I'm getting a lot of this traction, you know, we're seeing progress, we're learning, I've, I've almost got this deal closed, or I've almost got the second deal closed, I think we can make it work. Um, but it's, you know, it's important to put parameters around there. And if I had been in a different situation, where I didn't have the spouse that was able to do it, we, we would have failed, right? I would have, at some point, I wouldn't have been able to pay my mortgage, right? I would have needed to go get, get, get a job. Um, so there was that of my own self and my own just sort of good good fortune um, that I had had enough success already that we had a had had some background and had an amazing wife um, who has a great career and and you know, she was the biggest investor because it was her income that was going into this in many ways. Um, the um, the other thing you know I, I'd say the most thing we got was at that point you still had a lot of the venture ecosystem saying like, this seems like a services business, not a tech mm. business. And like, we like to invest in tech companies, you know? And there were certainly big, and our friend Mo had done it. One Medical was already scaling. Oak Street Health was already doing great. And so it wasn't as though this was like the idea that you had found a, a provider organization or a health plan as opposed to a tech company wasn't new, but it was earlier. So there's certainly more people that said like, this can't get big. This doesn't, this doesn't seem venture backable. This isn't worth your time. You know, so we, they- I got some of that. So did you feel, so did you, uh, I was going to say, did you put the feelers out to like seed funds to say, look, I just need like a million dollars or 1.5 would help us go to a, you know, 12 month build cycle, give us 18 months com- to, to really prove this out. And I'll show you the numbers and we can, we can decide then. Uh, was, did that ever cross your mind seriously to go down that route? I did a little bit of talking and stuff, but I was pretty committed to like, I really wanted to first sale real patient data, real validation of the model before we raised capital. Um, and so, you know, we ended up taking a couple of steps, right? It was all me. Then we did a, you know, what we ended up calling a pre-seed round, which was some people that I knew, you know, some of them were friends. Uh, most of them were more professional people, but it was like angel investors, you know, some folks that, you know, and that was um, maybe half a million dollars new capital. Um, that came in in addition to what we'd invested. Um, and that was really the point of, we had some traction, we had some customers, we had some revenue, you know, I don't remember what it was, $10,000 a month or something. And we had some employees and it was, and then it was frankly like, we're going to start losing 
we're, you know, our payroll is going to be, we're, we're hiring more and more people. And, um, it was like, I can't float this anymore. Like there's like, we could be in a situation in which we started losing 20 or $30,000 a month. And I just, I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the part. We like literally did not have it. Or even if we literally had it, it was a, that's, that's a dumb decision for my family. You know, or maybe we was already, so it's like, we need some help. We had enough traction and, and, and went and got half a million to do that and then ran with it and, and got ourselves kind of up to maybe 40,000 a month in revenue and real and some repeatable sales process and stuff. And that's when we did the first kind of institutional round and we did that $2 million seed round. Um, you know, you, you don't remember this. I tried to talk you out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't remember that, do you? Yeah, before you met Verna, I tried to talk you out of it uh, because yeah. I was like, I just don't see how this, it didn't seem like the future. It does now. You've convinced me it is, and, and not because of the yeah. success, but but shortly after that, I was like, okay, I yeah. get it now, right? And so yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting because I think we're living in this Southern California, or let's and just I'm say I'm a selective non-listener, right? Yeah. Selective well, I mean, non-listener. When people are being negative. Yeah, selective non-listener or also, you know, it's, it's, we're, it's very easy when you're in the digital health space to surround yourself by people like us who are talking about, you know, how you can use machine learning to do this and that. My background was that in that reflection health used a very, very high level technology stack to get to get yeah. to do what it was delivering. Um, and I was like, wait, well, I, I, I'm, I'm coming from the clinical. I know how people work in this space. It's like, yeah, I know how doctors talk to psychology, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't. Right. I don't know to the level of how to extend our reach using all these other resources that are there, like social workers and psychologists mm -hmm. that exist that just aren't integrated into the system well. And so I think you've you've woven those pieces together really tightly now. Um, but in those in that first three months, what was like your favorite memory? Like what's the first three first three months of when you would consider concert to really have started to like its first patient? Like what, what's your favorite memory? You know, I'd say it was probably the first time we started getting testimonials from the doctor um, or the patients about how much they loved Angela, who was our first care manager. Um, and that was one satisfying because you were, you could see misery disappearing, you know, and they described it in a way that was really impactful. Um, and then it was also that, you know, and you, it's interesting, I mean, you know, I've talked about this before, but the one thing about startups is you're really, at the very early stage, you're actually making much less of a difference than you would if you just took a normal job, right? Like if you just ran the, for me on the administrative side, right? If I was just a deputy administrator of a service line at a big health system, every day you're seeing thousands of people they're walking through that door you're saving their lives you're giving them medicine and you make these little changes you and you go to startups and we glorify it but you're like no i'm i'm making powerpoints like i'm i'm like i'm on the phone I'm, we're not doing anything you know and so that was fun when it made that transition and you know the patients have always been most important and and seeing those outcomes were great and then also seeing the physicians some of our early physicians say this is really working like mm -hmm. this is helping me it saved me some time i love working with angela um i think this you know the code really got paid you know that boring stuff but like that was like yeah this could work that was really gratifying one because it was like we're there's someone's life is better and two it was like oh man this thesis might be right. Like we might be onto something here. And how has your view of mental health changed during the process of starting concert, thinking about the idea back in 2016 to now? Uh, I, I think it's pretty 
it'd be very safe to say everybody understands that is, is much more conscious of the landscape and the, the, the yeah. problems of mental health, especially since everyone's isolated now under the auspice of COVID. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the digital health space, it's like, you know, there are infographics coming up on LinkedIn every day on here are the thousand mental health startups, right? So what's your view on yeah, where yeah. you guys fit into that landscape, uh, where you want to be eventually, but also just in the entire stigma of mental health as a disease, a set of disease processes that affect yeah. all of us. I, I'm still a novice in many ways, you know, I mean, I'm super fortunate to have Verna and other people on our team that are the real clinical experts. I learn every month we do an all hands meeting, you know, um, and almost always there's a clinical component to that teaching a new skill. And I'm just, um, I'm in awe, you know, like this week, uh, this year rather, um, what the, the tools that our clinicians were teaching each other on how to handle social isolation yourself while handling that with your patients, right, that are experiencing incredible stresses from that isolation, right? Um, how they're going to handle you know, I remember when George Floyd got killed um, and and that erupted into our consciousness. And we were at that point working with practices all across the country, you know, some where you would have patients who are African-American that were much more sensitive to whether or not their, their care manager was. And you know, how do you do this when you're trying to do the right thing, but you're not African-American and you know you, you can't empathize the same way they can of what they're going through in those stresses. Um, vice versa, you might have a, um, someone that's starting to say some pretty racist things on the phone because that's, uh, or on the video visit because that's on top of everyone's mind and we're going through that. And how do you, how do you support um, uh, someone who has a real clinical condition but is also expressing views that you find abhorrent or inconsistent with the values of the company? And I'm like a deer in the headlights, like, oh my God, this is like, I'm overwhelmed. And it's just watching these amazing social workers, psychiatrists, nurse practitioners say like, this is what we do, right? Like, let's go find the person that really knows this. Let's get a presentation together. Let's train everybody up. Let's understand it. You know, let's recognize that there's, oh, I took a class on this already in my master's in social work. I was like, that was not in my MBA. I'm really glad someone else knows about this stuff. It's like, I'm thinking about some of this stuff for the first time. Yeah. Uh, really great that other people aren't. And then watching that, I think when we did it right, it's a way to both support our team because we're going through the same stresses that everyone is, but then watch them translate that and hopefully you know reflect that into the thousands of people we're caring for any given day. Um, that's what I've really appreciated. And, and and how early it is. I mean, I, you know, we are, people say, well, are you working on um, digital therapeutics yet, right? And all these people that are building software products that'll be interventions for behavioral health. It's like, not yet, but I love it. I mean, I, we will be the biggest customer user of these things. Maybe we'll end up being a developer too. But I mean, I think it's like where we want to do is our job is to um, get everyone the care they need and to give it the the best best evidence-based care and right now that's mostly psychotherapy um and that's and medication we'll set in things like that but in a few years it's going to be a lot more things that are pure digital or hybrid movements and that's that's super exciting and that's the world that i kind of know a little bit about i came from you know i can pretend as though i know how to do 
I know what software is, even though you and I both know that's uh, mostly a lie. I'm just the, the business stooge. But but then there's also so much advance on the biochemistry, the genomic sequencing, right? The you know this, how do you understand? You know, where we can do more to understand a new class of medications coming, or we can predict uh, prospectively whether or not certain SSRIs are going to work for people. And there's an ex you know, hopefully concert can be a mechanism to learn that stuff really quickly and propagate it out uh, a lot faster than um, than it would if we were uh, not a digitally native uh, new learning organization. Has that been a challenge for the practitioners at concert, which is dealing with uh, a more medication centric health system that we traditionally have had in the area of psychiatry, mostly because although the physicians and social workers certainly know, an aspect of yeah, it, that's certainly a aspect of collaborative care is that one, of, even in behavioral health, you have a stigma in which people or not a stigma, separation, excuse me, on certain people that learn even all the way down to, you know, counselors don't call their their patients patients, they call them clients, right? It's the same person. But if you're just getting therapy, it's your client, you know, and if you're a doctor, you call them patients, right? Um and there's like there's kind of reasons for that. It's deep seated in the way they're trained and taught. And it's are you the medical model or not? You know, and those things. And and part of collaborative care is to kind of I, I think when done well, I think the approach that under Verna's leadership we've taken is like our only ideology is we want to get people better and like what works, right? We're, we're gonna be one of our core values of the company is rigor, right? Yeah. What works, use evidence-based techniques, stand on the shoulders of giants that have built evidence, you know, built evidence before in both psychotherapy and both medication. Second is be patient centric. Like some patients are going to say, I don't want drugs. It's okay. We'll just do therapy, but we're going to, we're going to, we're just going to do therapy. We're still going to track or if you're getting better. And if we, if we can't get you better yet, you know, without any using medications, we're not never going to, you know, it's always your decision, but we're going to bring it up. Hey, you know, I know you didn't want to take meds, but psychotherapy has gotten you this far you know, should we, you know, do we think about it, right? You know, and, and vice versa, you have some people that say, I think I don't have time for therapy or I think it's for wimps, but I'm happy to take a drug. You know, it's like, okay, that's great. Fine. You know, there's, there's medication that might be able to work, but we're going to see, yeah. we're not, the success is not, did you get prescribed the drug? It's not, did you take the drug, right? It's, did you get better, right? Are you in remission? Are you sleeping better? Do you have energy? Do you have that? Or are we yeah. are we managing that? Some people will. And and so I think that framework, that chassis of I am committed to you as a person to get you better. I will not I I do not want to abandon you until you're better. And I want to bring every tool I can to you. And and you're still in the driver's seat about which ones you want to use, right? And and it's it's complicated. There's, there's doctors, you know, some some uh, of our primary care physicians will say, I want I, I want to use medicine at the as the last resort, and I always want to be using psychotherapy as the initial intervention. Um, others are, you know, just if you say the word sad, they take out their pen and boom, they've got their first SSRI and they just go go go, and they're very comfortable. And both those can be the right entry point, and we work for them, and we you know we work to help center it on what the patient wants and needs, and then do that. I think hopefully that that mindset. You know, if we can build that into the ethos of the organization, that that will, you know, as new innovations come, we can learn about them. We're not going to ever 
we're not going to ever use them with patients until we're sure their work. And then once we're sure their work, we'll use them with patients and then we'll track which patients do they work for. And I mean, hopefully yeah. it'd be, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if there turned out there was a single intervention that worked for everybody that has depression and they got better. I don't think it will, you know, my, uh, that'll never get there because depression isn't a thing. It's a, it's a confluence of things that we call one. We have one word for, That's right. you know, and, and there, we're still so early in understanding it and, and teasing it out. I know you just closed, uh, well, recently closed a funding round. What is that going to allow you guys at the team to do? Yeah, we're really excited um, about it. Um, I think, you know, we've tried all the way back from those bootstrapping days to be, you know, made a decision that we thought we could take capital in, deploy it effectively to hire great clinicians, build some technology, build our business systems ahead, because we really did think we could build an industry-leading entity. But to always be focused on um, it's a business. It's like this fundraising stuff, it's exciting. Like you don't, you you know, in the end you make, the, the business will operate when you can get paid for a service that you're providing. You, you create value in the world, you know how someone will pay you and they can pay you more for the, you know, they can, you create more value than it costs you to create and you can get paid for it and you can pay everybody. And so really, really excited about our new financial partners, our investors, but, you know, most excited about the fact that, that we're mostly funded by revenue, you know, and um, we're mostly paying for ourselves with that growth. Um, that said, you know, the capital we were able to raise this year um, from Vertical Venture Partners, the new funder, uh, Town Hall Ventures, Healthy Ventures, Clear Vision Equity, who were uh, also participating in our seed, but but re-upped in some really big ways. And then Silicon Valley Bank doing kind of a credit line for us at a facility um, gives us uh, resources. You know, we're moving from four states to eight states um, uh, this year. We're moving from not just serving independent primary care practices, but some really, really big health systems, um, which we're stoked about and, and have an enormous amount of work and, and can start to build the technology, the revenue cycle teams and things like that to support our clinicians. But the, the majority of the money is now, and I think we'll always hopefully be going to the our clinical operations, going to recruit, onboard, train, supervision, right, for amazing clinicians. And our view is, I think now it's kind of cool to um, – your people to be, you know, the, the venture jargon is full stack or technical service. But I think a lot of people really want to envision themselves as a technology company that has that has to employ clinicians because they have to do it, you know, or maybe they 1099 clinicians, they're part of that, but they they conceptualize the clinician's product. I think what we want to do from the beginning is conceptualize our clinical team or clinical operations as the core of the business, right? One of our other core values of the company is service. Uh, most importantly, that's service to our patients. But I think the rest of us have to think about we're in service to those clinicians. You know, we're, we have to sell the right deals where they can mm -hmm. do great medicine. We have to sell them in the right way that sets us up for success. Our technology team is doing nothing but helping those clinicians be more effective, right? Be more efficient, right? And helping those patients get better faster. And it's not, you know, it's, I don't think this vision is like, well, we need to have some social workers around while we're training our AI bots and then we're, we're gonna go all virtual. It's like, no, but those AI bots are gonna help to help patients self-service in a way that um, is more effective in the long run, you know, than, than a clinician could ever be. Um, uh, but it's going to be about enabling the best clinicians to treat more people, um, to be more patient-centric, and to be more effective, not, not as a way to get rid of them. 
That makes sense. Um, you know, I'm really, really cognizant of uh, caregiver fatigue, and I can't help but ask you about that just because I know that, you know, your team is doing such a great job helping patients with their mental health. How are you handling this yep. problem of just making sure the team's okay? Because right now, I'm sure you're also seeing, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, an influx of possible patients that are caregivers, right? That are, that are physicians, respiratory therapists, nurses. I mean, they're going through a really tough time right now, not just them, but other essential workers, you know, the people at the grocery stores, yeah. the people are being forced to, um, to endure COVID in a very different way than most of us. We've seen that a lot, just, just in our existing practices, you're seeing an increase in nurses and techs and doctors just showing up, you know, as patients. Um, it's different, right? They, they're, they're tough patients, right? They like, they think they know some of these answers and they do know some of these answers. So there's some unique elements and it's funny as we've built our team and, you know, I think we have an, a growing number of clinicians that are good at and like that, you know, and sort of like, yeah. oh, as a nurse. So like, let me have, you know, this person take care of them because he's really good with nursing. She's really good at that. We also got asked by one of our partners. Um, I think we're going to start talking about it publicly, but I don't want to do it on this because I don't think I have permission <laughs> sure. yet. But with one of our, um, and they asked us to say, hey, we want you to take care of our employees, uh, our employees in addition to our patients. Um, you know, they have a what's called an EAP program, which is like a thing a lot of big employers have, which is like a hotline you can call for all sorts of things that one of them could be if you're stressed or fatigued, but they're kind of limited normally. You normally have a non-licensed clinician. You're maybe doing a little bit of coaching, trying to connect them. But it's like, yeah, doctors aren't going to do that. Nurses aren't going to do that. And so they, you know, it was, a, it was the week of Christmas. I, I had to find some lawyers and get really busy to figure out how we could contract with an employer, not a medical group, you know. Um, and and uh, we just launched that, um, which has been exciting. You know, it's exciting because we're, we're helping a small number of, of people that have come through that. But yeah. what's more exciting is in some ways that the team that we were caring for said, this this is good. This, this, this care is not just good enough for our patients, but it's good enough for our our team and yeah. they really need it. And I mean, you know, the work that people in EDs and ICUs and, and, and hospital floors right now, it's, it's been crazy. I mean, thank God, you know, so many of them are getting their vaccine and the hopefully personal risk profile is beginning to finally go down because what they've done just working 24 seven and, and under that real risk to, to care for people that are really sick is, is amazing. Us being able to play a role for that um, has been great. And us recognizing our clinicians, you know, some of whom got COVID either some early when they were co-located in their primary care offices, um, or just got it in, in the way they're living, you know, life like so many people are, but recognizing that that's a real stress, you know, for ourselves. I know it was funny. We had a big rule early too on our own team, on our team side, you know, we used to say, I mean, one of them, we were already distributed. We were already a remote workforce. And we used to have these really strong kind of rules like, hey, it's not okay if your kid's crying yeah. during a session with a patient. Just because you work from home doesn't mean, you know, yeah. you're still a professional context. You have to sort of say, you have to give their, you know, but then all the schools got canceled. And it's like, listen, that can't be the advice anymore. Right. It's going to happen. Like we all have them, you know. You got kids running around. So now it's like, okay, one is don't feel bad about it. Hell no, I don't have happens them. happens to me, you know? <laughs> for yeah, and then and then also like, but, you know, hey, let's get let's figure this out on the fly. Like, talk to your patient at the beginning about how the fact that your kid's 
at home on Zoom school and is six. And so gets up from Zoom school all the time and make sure they understand it. You know, a small percentage of patients maybe find that unacceptable and get them to someone that doesn't have kids at home. Yeah. But, you know, the, mo the majority of patients, if you explain it, will understand it. It could be important, things like that. But it's it's been a lot from the biggest picture stuff to, to the littlest details that you've had to move both with our patients and our team. Well, Spence, this has been interesting, man. I, you know, I, like I said, I try to talk you out of this in the beginning and what's, what's amazing. And, and I was trying to push you into a technology enabled, a much more technology enabled realm. Not that you don't have a very, very, um, you know, astute eye for how to use technology in concert. I'm just saying I, I was, I was trying to steer you in other directions. You were very steadfast in knowing that this is the problem you're trying to solve. And I, I highly respect that. And I think it's so amazing what you've done with, over just the short, uh, the, the course of a, a short few years. Um, um, just for everyone at home, uh, you know, you obviously are very busy, very focused. Um, how, what's a typical day like for you? How do you organize your week, your day, so that you are as productive as possible, but that you're still balancing, you know, being a great dad, being a great husband, um, and being present for those things in your life? I, I don't know that I do all things all that well a lot of times. Um... Lori's the ten puller. I think she's great about reminding me that it's not all about the company and the job, and you have to turn off. Um, harder to create boundaries now that we're all working from home. You know, as you can work all the time. It's like, you know, why not answer emails at ten o'clock? Because you're in the same place you are when you're answering emails at two in the afternoon. You know, um, so I, I'm not. I don't know that I'm a role model there, other than you have to be intentional about it and, and focus. I have, um, we moved during COVID to a new, a new place yeah. um, this fall. I took that moment to um, not bring the phone into the bedroom anymore. And I've, I've actually held that for about three months. That's been my own person. I was, I really got into some unhealthy habits there. You know, email and Twitter were the last things that I saw as I fell asleep. Um, they were the first things I looked at in the morning. And even sometimes you wake up at three, especially with an East Coast team, you wake up at four in the morning and you start to already see emails and then you, you know, you get it. And um, so it's just like, I, I can't do that when I'm in bed, I'm sleeping or I'm talking with Lori or, you know, I'm with my wife. And, and if I really think I need to get up, do work, like get up, stand up, go into the bathroom where the charger is, get your phone and you can do it. And that happens to me every once in a while. I, I can't sleep. I get up at four in the morning and I go do it. And I click in, but it's like, listen, I'm going to work. I'm not going to be there with my face on my pillow, you know, scrolling or maybe responding to two emails. And so that's been the one tip that's been helpful. And I, it's, it's made a pretty big impact. You know, that I think the other is just remembering to go outside, remember to exercise. I had, I kind of hacked my life before I used to commute on my bike. And so my commute was my exercise. Now that I work from home, I don't get that. And I've had to be intentional to try to get that back because I think it's an important part of not gaining weight, but also just kind of feeling better. How do you prioritize your day at work? How do you know uh, any one day, what does, you know, how do you, the, all the different tasks that concert needs uh, um, um, your attention? You know, we're trying to get better about that. Um, you know, I do a couple of things, which is um, I've now started to do what are my big picture things that I want to get done this quarter, you know, I, I promise it to my board. Um, so I embarrass myself if I don't get it done. And then I try to keep that on top of my 
Evernote to-do list. You know, uh, Cal Newport uh, wrote this book, uh, Deep Work, that I liked a lot. I read a few years ago. Um, I ignore most of his advice, um, which includes like not checking social media, uh, but um, and 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 batching emails. I'm terrible at that. One thing I am, I try to be good at though, is writing um, a to-do list at the beginning of the day, um, and then rewriting it as the last thing I try to do, right? Which is sort of like, what didn't I get done yet? What are my priorities for tomorrow based on what my schedule is? You know, what are the, what are the tasks that I need to get done? Um, and that can be good on not just moving into responsive mode. You know, what's the email I just got? What's the text message I just got? And a little bit more proactive on what are the biggest things I need to get done and how do I do that? That's been along with leaving my phone out of my bedroom that act of writing the to-do list at the end of the night can yeah. be a nice thing to say, that's a, some really important stuff. Yeah. I'm going to work on it tomorrow, but it's six o'clock and I'm going to go play with my kids now. So, you know, um, and, and every once in a while you say, no, that really has to get done before midnight. Like it really does. So I'm going to, I'm going to play with my kids and I'm going to, I'm then going to do that. Or I'm not going to play with my kids like I should, or I'm going to be distracted, but more than nine times out of 10, these things that feel urgent you're like i can do that tomorrow and if i wake up and i'm rested and i can crank that out i'll do it so how have you been with uh, your robin hood account <laughs> yeah that's i've been <laughs> you know you know it's funny i mean i've got what some, do you think about all of that i don't know it's wild the only thing i learned in business school is that um trying to day trade or trying to beat the market is is um silly right and and i like the only thing i learned was try to save as much money as you can and like, you know, invest it broadly in accounts and ignore them, you know, kind of thing. And um, one of the things that's funny, I think a nice mechanism that I have is I've never bought an individual security. Like I never, I've never owned. And, you know, sometimes and people say, oh, I bought Tesla early. I mined Bitcoin early. I, I did Amazon early. It's like, that's great. But, you know, you know, over time, you'd normally have as many of those, you have more losses than you do wins there. Sometimes it's nice, I think, for my own commitment mechanism that like, I don't, I don't wanna break that that streak that says I've never bought an individual security. All I've ever done is buy broadly indexed funds and stuff like that. So uh, I think that helps me not download um, Robinhood and uh, and like you know day trade as my replacement yeah. for the yeah. uh, you know the the, the <laughs> poker game with buddies that I used to have back when we could be in the same room with people. Yeah. Right. So, so looking back, I mean, at all these things you've done, uh, all the moves you've made, uh, like you said, some were luck, some were calculated. Is this the place that you like? You feel comfortable with now? Like you're like, this is it. I finally found it. This is this is it. I'm you're in your stride. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I'm loving it. I'm I'm super fortunate. Um, you know, it really feels like. Concert health is going to be the most important thing I do in my professional career. Um, I think we have an opportunity to build a really big organization that helps a lot of people, creates really great career paths for amazingly talented clinicians, um, and um, and that's that's a blast. You know, one thing I'm learning, um, you know, I think stage-wise, I think I'm a little better at this stage than I am at the true startup stage. I'm like bad at the the cold calling piece or whatever. It's really fun to have a team and have that motivation and all those sorts of things. So we'll do that. You know, we'll find out. Um, I think it's a, you know, some people find out at some point they get bored 
or they're not good at it, you know, you're great to get in the first 10 million in revenue, the first proof point, and then you got to, you know, hire the adults. Um, I mean, I'm, we're old enough to be adults now. I got my, my hair's all gray, but uh, maybe that'll, maybe that'll turn out. But right now, you know, it's, it's, it's more and more fun as we grow. So we'll see where that happens. Well, how do people get a hold of you? How do they uh, get a hold of you and also find out and keep track of what you're up to? Yeah. So uh, Twitter's great. Uh, SC Hutchins uh, on there, you know, check it. Uh, you can still ping. I'm still the person that gets the uh, email alerts at the back of uh, the uh, the concert uh, web form. So just go to concerthealth.com or concerthealth.io and um, uh, you can find there and get the web form on the company. You know, we're starting to have a bunch of team that's a lot better and smarter than me. So we're getting good about like press releases there's a blog going live on our website soon uh the social stuff on linkedin and twitter a little bit facebook um is, is getting more regular so in all those places are great spots to sort of keep dibs on us um as we grow and and yeah. um you know we need a lot of awesome people to join the team uh we're hiring a ton uh for clinicians and hiring a lot of non-clinical roles too and so if people think what we're doing is interesting um, and you're smarter than me, um, you know, look at our career page and, uh, you know, we love those love, love to have people join the team. Okay. Hey man, thank you so much for spending out uh, two hours out of your very busy day to uh, tell us about this. Let's just tell your story. I think this is the kind of thing where there's a bunch of people out there who are, are in a, in a line of work and they, and they, it doesn't exactly align with what they want to do. They're not really sure what they want to do yet, but they're very, very, uh, fearful and anxious about taking some time off or, or even setting up the structure of their lives where they can take the time off to find out. And you've been through those very scary steps. Not only have you done it with concert, but you did it a couple times, right? And uh, it seems like you're getting better and better at it each time, or at least getting just more comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is what I think a lot of startups is, right? Like work at startups is just the risk of not knowing where things are going to go. It can be something that everyone has to deal with differently, but you figured it out. Um, so thank you very much for, for taking the time. Yeah, no, it was awesome. It was great to catch up. Thank you for having me and to tell some of these old stories. <laughs>